1: Forty percent of people in their forties and fifties have both an aging parent and a child under the age of twenty-one. Caring for people in multiple generations demands time, love, attention, and more. Welcome to Caught Between Generations with your host, Dr. Merrill Griff. Our program will bring you the information you need as a family caregiver for everyone for whom you care, with guest experts and resources to help you keep sane and organized. Now, here is Dr. Mer- Harold Griff.
0: Welcome to Call Between Generations, and as always, thank you so much for joining us. I know as a caregiver how busy and overwhelmed and often how stressed you are, so it really means a lot that you've decided to share your time with us today, so thank you. So on Call Between Generations, we always like to share information with you that is like a little different take on our familiar topic. So many of you are familiar with trauma, unfortunately, and the effects of post-traumatic stress syndrome, but today we're going to be discussing not only PTSD, but how trauma affects you know, other people around you. Usually we're talking about how it impacts the victim, but today we're going to talk about how it can impact your your loved one, your significant other, how it impacts other family members, how it can even impact your children and your grandchildren. And basically the effects of this can be, you know, felt from generation to generation. We begin with Dr. Ariel Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz is a licensed clinical psychologist and is the author of the complex PTSD workbook, a mind-body approach to regaining control and becoming whole. Welcome to Caught Between Generations, Dr. Schwartz. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. So, Dr. Schwartz, what actually is the difference between complex PTSD and traditional PTSD?
2: That when we think of PTSD, most of us think about single incidents that happen, such as a car accident or um, a natural disaster. But when we're looking at complex PTSD or CPTSD, we are looking at chronic stress or chronic incidents that occur over a period of time. So that the um, single incidents themselves, sometimes they're quite significant, um, each, each one among itself, but sometimes they're subtle or it could be actually what was missing. So for example, often with complex PTSD, we're looking at developmental trauma or trauma that occurred in childhood. And in this case, it might be the lack of the presence of a parent or neglect that can cause the development of symptoms of PTSD, which are typically feeling emotionally overwhelmed um, and uh, sometimes not always knowing why or feeling out of control emotionally, um, and that sometimes we develop what are called avoidance behaviors uh, or ways to push away those emotions because we don't know how, how to handle them. So in your book,
0: you you have a, a great quote that I really liked, and you talk about that an understanding of complex PTSD may actually help. And this is a quote, clients who have feared erroneously that they are too unusual or weird to be helped. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that a little, because I thought it, it, for some people who may actually be feeling that way, like, well, you know i wasn't I wasn't raped. I didn't go through a war in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm feeling this way, but you know, man, oh God, I should not be feeling
2: this way, right, right. And I think that's what so many people struggle with. And, and actually the quote that you just read is written by the, the forward author of the book, uh, Dr. Jim Knipe, who has been a mentor and colleague of mine for many years. And, uh, but I would say that I experienced that in, uh, in my work often that people come in saying what's wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. Uh, Uh, my feelings are, are out of, um, you know, out of the norm, Uh, I shouldn't be feeling this way, nothing serious happened to me, I wasn't in a war, so why am I feeling this way? Those types of questions that the clients ask, because often the trauma itself was either so so frequent that it became a norm that there isn't another reference point to say, gosh, you know... um, it was strange that my mom was always holding a glass of wine because that's all I knew, right? And um, and so it, it just becomes this thing of there's something wrong with me that it bothered me. So hey. once we start to unpack it and say, and somebody else says, "Gosh, you know, did it ever bother you that your mom was always holding a glass of wine at night?" Um, well, it actually did bother me. Well, that's a normal feeling to have, really. You know, I um, I always thought that there was just something wrong with me that I, that that I was too sensitive. Right. And so those words of I'm I'm too sensitive, I'm too much, I'm not enough are good indicators that there was an internalization that there's something wrong with the self versus there's something wrong with my environment.
0: I, I, I thank you. I I I I'm not sure you understand that that you recognize, and I don't mean that in a negative way, just how critical that is for people to hear um, and how Mm -hmm. much your words really will mean to people who I think may Mm -hmm. have been feeling this way for a long, long time um, Mm -hmm. and never felt as though um, they were comfortable enough to express that. So thank you Mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. Um, How is complex PTSD relevant to family members who are caring for aging parents?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love that I have the opportunity to speak to you about this because one of the roles that I had an opportunity to play for several years is that I worked in a residential um, hospice and a residential home for aging individuals and often I would also work with their children who would come in to visit with their parents and, <clears throat> excuse me, there were um, so often kind of unfinished business from the past that the um, these individuals would struggle with their feelings towards their aging parents, what uh, sometimes was never able to really be addressed. And uh, at the same time, the feeling of loyalty, the feeling of love that can coexist with feelings of resentment, and that the... Um, you know, to not overuse the word complexity, but those are a very complex set of emotions. I love you. I want good care for you, mom or dad. And at the same time, I resent you because you weren't there for me when I really needed you. And I don't know what to do with that. And And I think that those feelings come up more frequently than many people want to admit. And I certainly saw it a lot in, in that role as um, uh, working in that environment and, um, and sometimes it is possible to have very meaningful conversations that start to unpack the past um, with our parents and with, uh, you know, before uh, as they're approaching that, that final phase of life. And sometimes it's not possible to have that conversation, in which case the the adult child uh, who's often caregiving for those parents is burdened with, now I'm the one stuck having to to work through this all by myself. And um, nonetheless, this, this you know, concept of caught between generations is so powerful because the legacy that was passed on to you as an individual is yours now. It is yours to work out so that you can actually be conscious of it and not necessarily pass it on to the next generation.
0: I I see this frequently um, in our Sarah care adult day centers where, you know, people are still you know, living with their adult parents sometimes. They've had to move them into their home or they've had to move into their home um, to care for them. And, and you're right. When there's been um, some type of abuse or neglect in the past, um, they feel very, very conflicted, and it's really difficult to deal with. Do you, do you have any specific recommendations or suggestions for how to handle this kind of situation?
2: The... You know, I, I, I'm a huge fan of getting support, um, and that can look many different ways. You know, one way that it can look like for uh, the adult caregiver is to go into therapy and to have a place that is just for you, where you can talk to someone who can really understand things from your point of view. And... Um, There are also wonderful support groups where this can, you know, you can realize that you're not alone in having some of those feelings of either um, unfinished grief or resentment um, or longing for to finally feel accepted by your parent, even though they really weren't capable of that. And so in one way or another, I think that, you know, know, we, it takes a village at every phase of life and that we... um, all need to feel like we have the people that hold us and that see us now and that can recognize our hurt um, so that even if our biological parents were not able to provide that, um, that witnessing and that holding ground for you as an adult, that you can find that somewhere, that you can have that reparative experience. We do talk a
0: lot on the show about uh, the importance for caregivers to take care of themselves, to self-care, because Mm -hmm. otherwise they can't continue to take care of other people. So, do you have other um, suggestions for managing um, the stress that goes along with caregiving?
2: Yeah. Um, One of the pieces that's in my book is the guidance on how to develop your own self-care plan. And... I honestly think that so many caregivers are tempted to put themselves last and that just like the metaphor of the oxygen mask on the airplane, we need to know how to um, take care of ourselves first so that we can be in that caregiving role without becoming martyred or feeling um, the buildup of resentment or allowing it to compromise our own mental or physical health. So a self-care plan actually... Ask you to literally design your week with yourself and your own self-care in mind. When are you going to go on a walk outside? When are you going to integrate a mindfulness practice? How does that map into your week? What kind of help do you need in order to fit that into your day? So that if you know that you have children to take care of, your parents to take care of, and you're working at the same time. How do you build in, even if it's five minutes, three times a day, of a breathing practice? Or how do you get your kids involved with you in going outside to the park and making sure that you get that fresh air and, you know, get some time away? What what supports can you bring in? What respite services can you bring in so that you get a break and go get time with your partner or um, by yourself? And thank you. And so, Yeah, so part of it is time. And I would say that another piece is also knowing what those practices are that can reset your system in a very short amount of time. So, you know, something like a two-minute breathing exercise or a two-minute meditation that can be done anywhere that can help you find a sense of grounding in yourself.
0: We've been talking to Dr. Um, Schwartz about the effects of trauma. Uh, And when when we return, we're going to continue to talk to her about the effects of trauma on multiple generations and also a little bit more about some specific uh, therapeutic techniques with which she's very, very familiar with. So stay
1: with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. At SarahCare, we provide daytime activities in health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner, While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H care.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtbetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show.
0: Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. I am Dr. Merrill and I'm here with Dr. Ariel Schwartz, who is the author of the Complex PTSD workbook, A Mind-Body Approach to Regaining Emotional Control and Becoming Whole. So Before we left, we were beginning to talk a little bit um, about the effects of trauma, and I'm very, very interested in hearing about, and I'm going to use your technical term for this, which is transgenerational trauma, which is trauma that gets translated from one generation to another. Can you tell us
2: more about that? Sure. So, the understanding of transgenerational trauma is that the research shows that Adults who have PTSD and become parents, if they have not resolved the trauma of their own history, their children are more likely to be predisposed. So if they don't, if the child never experiences a trauma, they're not going to be born with post-traumatic stress syndrome. However, those children upon trauma exposure have a greater likelihood of developing post-traumatic stress syndrome than children whose parents did not have PTSD. And so So this research... Yeah, go ahead, please. No, no, no.
0: I was going to ask you: is there, is there any way that you can stop that transferring of that trauma from one to another, one generation to another?
2: Yes. So, so what that requires from the 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 parent in this case is that they actually can start to do their own healing work; that they can take. Um, they can develop a cohesive narrative. This is what happened to me. This is mm-hmm. mine. Because when, when, it, when adults doesn't do that and a child um, starts to trigger their parent in some way or another because children are hard to raise, because children cry, because children have needs. If a parent didn't have their own needs met and now is, is parenting a child who um, expresses their needs They might, you know, inadvertently say, well, I didn't get to have needs, so why should you have needs? Um, If a parent was abused, they might feel um, triggered when their child gets angry at them and feel uh, like they can finally retaliate against the abuser, even though they could never retaliate against their parent. So it gets, you know, it, it gets complicated if a parent has not done their own work and say, oh, My child is evoking these feelings in me. These are mine. This is about my own history. This is about my feelings towards my father or towards my mother and not towards my son or my daughter. And therefore, I can actually take hold of my own emotions rather than just acting out with my child, which is a big part of the the nurture aspect of that transgenerational transmission.
0: You know, many, many years ago, I did a lot of work with uh, an organization called Parents Anonymous, um, mm-hmm. and which is for people who have abused their children or, th- or, or fear that they may abuse their children because they've been abused mm-hmm. themselves. And it goes back to what you were talking about, about the support group, because the essence of that approach is that you have a group and you have everyone's name and telephone number. And when you mm-hmm. think you may be Suddenly, fall back into an old pattern. You call someone. It could be two o'clock in the morning, but you have someone to call um, rather than mm-hmm. take action.
2: Yeah. So. Yes, yeah. So I think so, that's so essential to to have those safe places that you can call where you're not going to get shamed for those feelings because. I think every parent, when they feel angry or feel an urge to yell at their child or shake their child, they immediately get flooded with shame, saying, I'm such a bad parent to feel this way. And the truth is, the more that we talk to other parents, the more that we hear, me too, I felt that way before also. This is what I did to calm myself down. I had to put myself in time out And yeah, my kid was screaming in the other room, but it was better than me yelling at them back. So... Uh-
0: you, you talk in your book about a variety of therapeutic techniques, and I think for the layperson, what we hear a lot is about cognitive behavioral therapy. But actually, mm-hmm. you're a core teacher with the Bayberger Institute um, that offers mm-hmm. therapist training in two therapeutic approaches for mm-hmm. PTSD. Um, and so, one of those is what's called EMDR therapy. Can can you explain what that is and what the impact is on those with PTSD. Absolutely. So
2: EMDR therapy actually incorporates elements of cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, um, but it also brings in um, what I think is a very necessary part of healing any trauma, which is a somatic element, or it brings in body awareness. And so EMDR is a desensitization approach where we turn towards traumatic incidents or in the case of complex PTSD, maybe a theme of neglect or a theme of abuse uh, that was chronic, and we identify what is it that we believe about myself today? What is it that you have internalized about those experiences and about yourself now in the world? And we ask then the next important question, which is what would you like to believe about yourself? And we help to identify how does distressing is it when you think about that old trauma and we work with a desensitization process by identifying how distressing that feels in the body and then allowing yourself to review it through um, bilateral stimulation or dual awareness state and so there's a rhythmic alternation between the right and left side of the body which is alternately stimulating the right and left side of the brain as a result, what we see is that the distress associated with the historical trauma begins to go down, and the individual starts to feel more freed up, not only in the mind in the sense of that that um, hook of the negative belief, but also in the body. The weight of the trauma feels lighter.
0: That's really interesting. I, I, tell us um, also the other technique that you discussed, which is somatic uh, psychology.
2: Mm-hmm. And so in somatic psychology, we recognize that not only do we have to process through traumatic incidents with our mind, we have to be able to say, that happened, it's over now, um, you know, I'm living in the here and now, I'm not living then and there. We also need to be able to help the body catch up with that reality. So sometimes what hap- the impact of trauma is actually a physiological experience that we're imbalanced in, in terms of, out of balance in terms of how we're managing stress, that we have our habitual stress responses, that we're always holding tension in our shoulders or in our chest or in our stomach, and it can also result in some chronic health issues if this is not addressed. So in somatic psychology, we recognize that not only does the mind need to process, but the body needs to do so as well. We need to complete the movement pattern that was truncated in the case of trauma. So a child, for example, who was abused and was never able to defend themselves needs to actually know, now I can walk away. I'm no longer stuck and helpless and, um, and immobilized. Now I can actually get up and take a deep breath and stretch my arms. I don't have to get frozen into that old stillness. And so we work with some of those old patterns that have been habits that we've learned in body and mind, and we, we learn new habits that we can access in the here and now.
0: It sounds like this might be a good approach for other types of problems, because I, it mm-hmm. seems to me these are very you know, common responses um, to triggers that people have in their lives.
2: It's so true. And, and more and more of the research, especially in the EMDR uh, research that's happening out there, is they're applying these therapies into uh, depression and for generalized anxiety, for um, uh, OCD and for uh, you know, bipolar disorder. And so they've, they're broadening the range, recognizing that there are a whole assortment of disorders that actually when we get down to the root, sometimes those disorders have a trauma component that precipitated the development of bipolar or depression. And sometimes individuals are misdiagnosed as those other diagnoses when the trauma was actually not properly assessed for. So, Dr. Schwartz, if I'm listening
0: to this and I think, well, I really might benefit um, from this, I'd like to be able to find someone who could do EMDR or semantic psychology. I mean, how, how would I do that? How would I identify a therapist who does that?
2: There are several ways. One, for for EMDR, you can go to EMDRIA, which is the EMDR International Association website, emdria.org, and they have a list of uh, their certified practitioners that are literally all over the world at this point. Um, you can also go to the Mayberger Institute and find people that myself and uh, Barb Mayberger have trained in uh, somatic psychology and EMDR, and we have trained people all over the country as well as looking up in your local area for those keywords EMDR therapy and somatic psychology and see who might be doing that combination of therapies in your area. Thank you.
0: We don't have a lot of time, but I want to ask you one very quick last question, and that is can you explain the term emotional hijacking?
2: Absolutely. What a what a good question. So, emotional hijacking is a term that was developed by Daniel Goleman, and he wrote the book Emotional Intelligence. And what he recognizes is that there there is a portion of the brain called the the midbrain or the limbic portion of the brain that houses the the parts of us that respond to um, to difficult emotions, to fearful emotions, and that the part of that brain for survival purposes is actually more strongly wired to hijack the rational thinking parts of the brain. So for example, if you were walking in the woods and a lion jumps out at you, you don't want to think, goodness, there's a lion. I wonder what I should do. Maybe I should run. Nope. We are wired for survival purposes to immediately be running down that trail before we even realize that the lion was there. And that unfortunately that translates into our um, daily life where maybe there's not a lion, but the next thing we know we're running down the road before we even realize that we, that we were triggered. We've been emotionally hijacked. Often this occurs within PTSD. If there is something that's reminiscent of the historical trauma, even if it's not threatening today, the brain will register it as a threat and will respond with a flashback or a, a react, a defensive reaction that's based on the past.
0: Dr. Schwartz, I have a question for you, and I don't mean to give you trauma or PTSD, mm-hmm. um, but I have I have more questions for you. Do you think you be might be willing to stay with us for a little bit longer mm-hmm. today? Um, I have. Well, let me take a look at the clock. I have uh, about five more minutes. Okay, great. Okay, so um, let us just continue because, you know, you have great suggestions for being able to to gain control and and increase your tolerance for distress. But the the problem always is that people have is, you know, how do I do that? I I, I can't even think about how to get started doing this. I mean, what's my first, like, even baby step that I can begin to make these changes?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I would certainly recommend go get my book because it's going to walk you in a measured way, in a very, so very measured <laughs> way, <laughs> actually, very measured actually, way. Actually, and, and I think in a very user friendly way. How do you start to walk yourself towards this so that if if you do feel overwhelmed, you can say, "Oh, I can do one little piece at a time." And I honestly think that there is a huge amount of truth to that. That we need to just take this one day at a time and. Start to become self-aware. Start to recognize, okay, I seem to get triggered when XYZ happened. Make a list of what tends to trigger you. See if you can I ask yourself, what would support me most when I feel that way? Do I need time alone? Do I need to be able to talk to someone about it? Um, What are the healthy choices that you can turn towards in those moments and recognize that maybe you have some default habits? Oh, wow, when I feel triggered, I go for the glass of wine. Can I make a better choice? Can I start to journal instead? Can I create a safe space in my home that lets me contemplate some of these questions rather than feeling like I'm a hamster stuck in a hamster wheel constantly running?
0: We've been talking to Dr. Ariel Schwartz, and actually, I agree with Dr. Schwartz. You should buy this book. Uh, I've read it, and um, not you know it it really is an excellent book, and it can really, really walk you through. Dr. Schwartz, can you give us more information and your contact information?
2: Absolutely. So i um in addition to the book, I keep an ongoing blog that is on the topics of Trauma, healing from trauma, resilience, which is probably my most passionate topic. Um, I'm also a yoga instructor, so I'm often weaving into my blog topics of mindfulness and self-care activities that can be done right from the comfort of your home. Um, my blog can be found at DrArielSchwartz.com. That's d r a r i e l l e s h w a r t zcom And I'm here in Boulder, Colorado, for those of you that might be local. Um, Otherwise, you can uh, find the book on Amazon, or there's links to it on my website, and um, and it's just been absolutely wonderful to be here today.
0: Oh well, thank you so much. I really do appreciate your being here, and you've had such wise, really wise words, and I don't say that lightly, uh, for us. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. We'll be um, dealing with issues of how trauma impacts your intimate relationships, uh, especially with significant others. So stay with us.
1: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where's your dad? What's he doing? You'd know if he was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. You'd know he's enjoying
0: a full day of cooking, computers, yoga, golfing, and he's home by dinner. You'd know SarahCare LPN and RN Nursing Care is with him to ensure he gets the right medications at
1: the right dosages. You'd know. How's your dad? He's just fine. At SarahCare
0: Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Call 330-451-6108 for one free day of care at SarahCare.
1: Do you understand what really needs to be done for your health? Or like many, are you mostly letting what you hear and see in today's media dictate your healthy lifestyle? It's time to get focused. There is a reason why cancer, heart disease, chronic fatigue, hypothyroidism, and other illnesses are running rampant in our world. Ganino Wellness Radio with Dr. John and Linda Ganino will show you that there are easy, preventative, everyday steps to get you back on track. Listen live every Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: Welcome to Caught Between Generations again. I'm glad you've decided to stay with us because with us right now is Dr. Suzanne Phillips, who is a psychologist who has provided services and training all over the world. She has been a guest on many national television shows. And actually, Suzanne and I share a bond. I'm not sure that she's even aware of. And that is that we were both radio show hosts on Voice America. Uh, Suzanne's show is called psycho Up Live, and it is on the Variety Channel. She is the author of Healing Together, A Couple's Guide to Coping with Trauma and Post-Traumatic Stress. Welcome to Call Between Generations, Suzanne. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much, Merle. It's my pleasure to be here. Great. So, Suzanne, I this may seem like a little bit of a strange question, but I, I want to clarify something because sometimes there's a misinterpretation of couples. So, when you're talking about coping with trauma and and post traumatic stress together, does that mean that we're only talking about people that are married, or no, could it be no. a significant other?
3: It's definitely a significant other, a partner. Uh, Merle, um, a partner who shares a life with someone else who's impacted if
0: their partner in some ways has faced a traumatic event. So what is the impact of PTSD on a a couple, and and is it different than what you see on individuals? Well, let's just start by saying, so the traumatic event, Merle, is
3: the event, it's the two minutes we never see coming. And usually, whether it's a car accident, a combat injury, the loss of a child, it in some way really jolts our sense of self, our sense of safety. It affects us physically, psychologically. Generally, it's life-threatening, creates a sense of fear and helplessness. And when something jolts us like that, It almost always impacts the person that we live with, the person that we share a life with, because when you think of it, whether the couple's married, they spend tremendous time together, they are consciously and unconsciously connected. And so if I've just been jolted, and we're going to talk about the common stress reactions, how could you not be impacted, and how could our relationship not be impacted?
0: So what do you see as is, is kind of the most significant factor in in couples being able to resolve what, whatever the trauma is that one or both of them have experienced? What what seems to be the best predictor? Well, one of the things that I, I say to couples is that their relationship takes the hit,
3: but the relationship is a source of recovery. Now, most people, after trauma, struggle with certain reactions. And part of the recovery in trauma work is establishing, re-establishing a sense of safety. And I have found that when couples know that hyperarousal, the inability to sleep, irritability, quick startle response, avoidance, flashbacks, nightmares, when they know that these are common reactions and we make meaning of them, Merle, they stop taking them personally. Because right after a traumatic event, I don't care who you are, you're going to be jolted. And if you know you're not the only one who can't sleep, you're not the only one who is very irritated on a Starbucks line, a. You're not going to take it personally. Your spouse or partner is not going to take it personally. So the first thing I think that helps couples is making sense of what they've been through and knowing we need to come back to reclaim each other because trauma
0: also disrupts attachment. And that actually means it disrupts relationships. So, in talking about relationships, you you state in your book that you found that the two most common difficulties uh, are anger and issues around sexual, sexual intimacy. So, let's let's discuss anger first. So, what's the relationship between anger and trauma? Okay, it's a great question. And, Merle, when we would meet couples, groups, someone
3: would say, is anybody else angry beside me? So anger is really very complex and covers a lot. Before, when I said most people feel very hyper-aroused or irritated or irritable, sometimes anger really is is a representation of a lack of sleep, the persistent sense that you're in danger, you're on alert, you're ready to fight, you're ready to defend yourself. Sometimes anger is a cover for grieving. You know, there's loss that's not traumatic, but there is no trauma that doesn't cause loss because it's a loss to the fact that we think we can control things. So very often, trauma involves grieving in your own time, in your own way, but grieving is not such an easy process. And men in particular would prefer to stay angry than to be crying. One, one uniformed service person said to me, if I start crying, I'm not going to stop, so I'd prefer to stay angry. The problem was that was very disruptive to his marriage as well as his family. So anger is often another way to kind of hide communication that I'm feeling vulnerable, I'm feeling helpless, And so people hold on to anger as a way not to feel like they're going to fall apart. Now, once people start to see that they're not alone with the anger, and the anger has many different meanings, Merle, they're able to move beyond it. They find out everyone in the group wants to cry. They find out their spouse would be okay with them not being
0: perfectly strong because they've just been through a traumatic event. You know, I think what I used to see sometimes between couples is that one would get angry and then the other one would not understand that, you know, there was something going on behind the anger. And so rather than responding softly or calmly, you know, everything would just escalate. You know, one would be angry, then the other one gets even more angry and the other one gets even more angrier because they're not really, they feel as though they're not being heard, although their communication isn't very clear. I mean, you have any suggestions for handling those types of situations? Well, one of the things that
3: we talk about all the time is the pause button, and that is if you know you're going to be quick to irritability and there is always shame and blame associated with trauma because we really do believe we can control our lives. If you know that it's very common that couples clash after trauma, because think of it, if you're going to blame someone in this world, it's usually going to be the person you love the most. Once they know that, they're able to actually stop and think, wait a minute, what are we doing? You know what? I think we're just both frightened. Uh, when one of my sons was in a very terrible car accident, I had already done a lot of couple work, Merle, and I already knew that when my husband and I started to fight or get very testy with each other, I would say, wait a minute, it's just that we're very anxious. He's going to have surgery tomorrow. So in other words, once you understand anger is covering a lot of feelings, you give the couple the tool to self-reflect. And the other thing I say to couples is when you feel like you just can't stop fighting, Stop talking and go do something together you both always loved. Take a walk, go to a movie, go get coffee, reset the bond because you're not going to move out of that angry back and forth because you're stuck in it. So I'm all about people really resetting the bond because that's the resource we want them to draw upon.
0: Suzanne, we don't have a lot of time, so let's just begin the discussion um, about um, the relationship between trauma and sexual intimacy.
3: Well, when you think about it, it makes perfect sense that traumatic events to one or both partners would affect their intimacy. There's a fatigue factor. Desire is often very much cut down when there's grieving. There is a sense of shame and blame for being sick, for being wounded, and an expectation that the other doesn't see them or doesn't desire them. There's very often, you know, Stephen Mitchell says most of intimacy is based on imagination, Merle. And when you think about it, it's very hard to suspend imagination and go into a kind of passionate, embrace. When life has become just a bit too real. And so one of the things we really say to couples is take your time and let's see if we can find a memory way before the trauma, because trauma freezes people in time. And we've said to people, reach back before it to a place where when you think of each other, you think of each other happy, sexual, connected, and you'd be surprised. People start to laugh. They'll say, oh, it was the green Chevy. It was her apartment. It was my father's um, truck. And all of a sudden, you see couples start to melt a little bit because they have a body memory associated with a good place. And literally, what you're trying to help them do is re-find each other. And then we really suggest, and I say to people, if you want to restore the intimacy, start by making time rather than making love. Make the date, drop off the coffee, and often start a project together. There's a theorist who says couples communicate in three ways. One way is they do something together, Then they communicate empathically, and then they start to actually touch each other. Now, think about it. In every movie where a couple's left on a deserted island, they build the rowboat together. Pretty soon, they're intimately sharing their life, and by the end of the movie, their arms around each other. So, what we're saying to couples is you need the intimacy because you have to replace the assault of trauma, whether it meant illness, whether it meant loss with the connection you share. Now, sometimes someone's really ill. They're not going to be able to be sexual. But you know what I found, Merle, that when people share a desire, that actually is very connecting. If someone's able to hold someone's hand, even in a hospital room, and say, you know, you're the only person I would ever really want to be with, that's lovemaking. It may be stored out verbally, it may mean the touch of the hand, but the expression of mutual desire, when you've been through a lot together, is really very, very valuable.
0: You have something you describe in your book, I I love this term, it's called partner care. And um, you talk about partner care and strategies for different types of issues. We've been talking about anger and sexual intimacy, but you talk about partner care for sleeping issues. I mean, sleeping issues is a big problem we talk about a lot, um, especially on this show, because it's a problem caregivers have anyway, um, even without trauma. So what does partner care really mean, and what's its relevance to um, sleeping issues?
3: Well, sometimes we call
0: it couple psychological first aid. I
3: think the first piece is not to be judgmental of the partner. Now, there's a lot of good material, your show, other shows, in terms of whether it's shutting off um, certain devices. But I would say that for couples, one of the things that I recommend is pillow talk. And that is that they really... Start to define a quiet time where they're just going to be together. Now, very often, one or the other doesn't want that. They have to check their emails because actually, Merle, they're trying not to go to sleep because they don't want to have a nightmare. Now, once the other partner knows that, we're in a different place because their partner is then able to say, okay, I get it, so let's watch something funny together. You want to shift the mood from tension to relaxation if you want to have any kind of better sleeping habits. You want to start to build up some rituals. Rituals together might work. Even parallel rituals work. Okay, you check that. I'm going to watch this, and then let's just talk for a few minutes. Now, what you don't want to do is blame your partner for not sleeping because that's never going to make a person sleep. The other thing is invite the partner for the walk. Couple care has to do with not being a vigilant critical mother, but actually becoming a compassionate presence and a compassionate partner. So if it means you notice that your partner won't walk, but she'll walk with you when you walk the dog, then that's going to be a part of the sleep hygiene for her, perhaps. Or how do you eat and how late are people eating? Once you join forces to sort of solve the problems, your goal is to have the person know you're not alone with this. And I don't blame you for this, but actually two heads might be better than one. So it's more of, also it can be taking over something that's been really plaguing the other. After trauma, there's often a cognitive fog so that the person can't do the billing. Well, if the other starts to realize she's not done the bills or he's not done the bills, maybe he can't think straight. Just to say, you know what? I'm taking over the bills and I'm also taking over this. You deal with that. If you can actually help the person with their needs, that's a very big help. Often to sleep worry, the type of thing that gets us up at night. So Suzanne, very often, what? go ahead. No, uh, I, go ahead. Go, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, very often, you become really a team member. The other thing I would have said is, you remind the person of what they used to do before. That really regulated their stress on a daily basis
0: because that's very connected with sleep what happens though in situations where the trauma has happened um, to both people so either they've lost a child or they've been through uh, a natural disaster a hurricane or tornado together and what happens in those situations then? how do you help each other
3: well, actually, I think one of the best things you do is recognize that people heal in community and you reach out for more helpers. That is, if you have both been through it, you re- really might need community groups. I think one of the reasons after 9-11, Merle, that we had such success with couple groups is because couples soar and heard from other people. At one point, we put spouses with, each, with different spouses, men with someone else's wives, wives with someone else's husbands, and amazing things happened. So that I would say if both of you have been assaulted by trauma, reach for the communities that could support you. It could be a therapist. It could be a group. It could be a bereavement group. If it's a disaster that affected the community, it might be that your local church center is having groups for psychological first aid, for group support. Very often we have um, compassionate groups for the loss of the child because the couple very often is, there's such an overwhelming amount of loss that they really need support from outside Israel.
0: And so, how do you find those groups? I mean, I, I, it's a question I hear a lot. You would think in the day of, you know, of Google and Internet search, it would be so easy, but, but people are stressed and they're overwhelmed and it's not so easy. Um, so what, what are your suggestions for that? Well, one of the organizations that I'm very involved with is the American Group Psychotherapy Association,
3: agpa.org. I would say you could go on that site, and across the country find a group on different types of problems with different kinds of leaders. Um, so that that's that's a very noted site. Um, and as part of their outreach, I would tell you, internationally and nationally, we've been available after most crisis. The other thing that people might do is that they could contact a local mental health clinic. They could contact compassionate friends. Um, They could contact some of the soldiers project with soldiers project and many given hour. So we have a lot of um, opportunities. The question is, I would say, if you really start, you can start with the American Group Psychotherapy Association. But even if you Google in help for the loss of a child, help after natural disaster, There's a very good chance you're going to be linked back to organizations that have both individual therapists and group therapists who could help you. Even
0: psychology today is a very um, viable place to find therapists, Merle. Thank you. We've been talking to Dr. Suzanne Phillips, um, who is the co-author of Healing Together, A Couple's Guide to Coping with Trauma and Post-Traumatic Stress. Dr. Phillips, um, just give us the rest of your contact information, if you would. Well, yes. I I have almost 300 blogs on many of the topics that
3: you've mentioned, Merle, in terms of how people cope, and that's at www. CouplesAfterTrauma.com, everything from handling teens, suicide, to terminal illness, and coping. Um, My Twitter is Healing, H-E-A-L-I-N-G, for couples. Um, And I would say if you go to my website, you will be hooked up with all my books, all my articles, and all the other organizations that I do outreach for. And that's Dr. www. www.excuse me. Go ahead. Go ahead. www.couplesaftertrauma.com www. and certainly listen into Up Live because
0: we have many topics that relate to some of the questions that you asked me today. Thank you, Dr. Phillips. It's been so great having you with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for asking me, Merle. Thank you. So I have to do a very quick shout-out. I only have 30 seconds, but I've got to do this to Katrina Norris and Allison Legate from Delta Airlines. Um, I left my computer recently talk about trauma on a flight from Akron to uh, Atlanta, realized it when I got into Atlanta. And I will tell you that they were calling me and in touch with me until they found that computer uh, at 2.30 in the morning. But they were comforting to me. They were supporting to me um, they were just unbelievable and I just I just needed to do a shout out to Delta Airlines and once again specifically to Allison Leakey, she was the stewardess on the plane and to Katrina Norris who is head of lost and found in Atlanta for Delta I cannot thank you enough um, this was a potential trauma that ended up very well so thank you so much yes Absolutely. Absolutely. Remember, as always, you're a great, fabulous caregiver, and you have to take care of yourself because you're very, very important to a lot of people around you. So take good care of yourself this week. Thank you.
1: Thank you for tuning in to Caught Between Generations with Dr. Mel Griff. Our program is live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We hope to see you here next week.